Old Testament reading today is taken from Psalm 118, from verses 1 and 2, followed by 19 to 29. If you would please turn with me to your Bible. From the Pew Bible, it's on page 956. Page nine five six. Psalm one one eight. Verse one. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Verse 19. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is good, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exhort you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. The scripture reading continues from New Testament, from Matthew, from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, from verses 1 to 11, on page 1531, page 1531. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken from the, through the prophet. 
Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the coat, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large cloud spread their clothes on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who come in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for your word read to us, and we pray that as we reflect on those words, you will speak to our hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three Mondays from now, on April the 24th, Malaysia will install her 15th Yang Di Pertuan Agong, Sultan Muhammad V of Kelantan. Monarchy always, uh, most times, seems to excite people, but maybe we've been through so many, this rotation system, that we're kind of numb to it. Nevertheless, uh, news articles have been written and Bernama put an article giving details of some of the things that the Sultan does to give us uh, a picture of the kind of person he is. And part of it reads as follows. His Majesty is a ruler with a big heart and addresses himself with humility as Ambo. That's Kelantanese, huh? when he greets the people. He is a ruler who is truly concerned with the welfare of his people. Hence, it is not surprising to see His Majesty going to the ground to meet the people right up to the interiors, including the Orang Asli in the remote parts of Guamusang and Jeli. As a patron of the Yayasan Sultan Kelantan, he helps the unfortunate segment of the society, like the orphans, poor and destitute and the disabled. The foundation also provides education assistance for his subjects. His Majesty is the one who envisioned the long-distance walk program Walkathon Diraja, Kelantan, to bring the society closer to the royal institution. Through Walkathon, thousands of people from all age groups and background have the opportunity to walk with Sultan Muhammad V and other members of the royal household. Sounds nice, huh? And I think people are appreciative of rulers who, what we say, turun padang, get to the ground, aren't we? People want someone who 
goes to the people to be with them, mingling with them, getting to know them, so that the ruler knows their needs and can work for the benefit of the people, so that they flourish, so that they live, are able to live the good life. We want rulers who are kind and generous, who put the welfare of people first. The people in Israel were no different. And in their long history, they had good kings and they had bad kings. And by the time of Jesus, they longed for a king who would lead them in the ways of God written in the Torah. And these ways they have learned from very young. Every child would go through the first five books of uh, the scriptures together uh, with the rabbi or whoever in the synagogue. And if they were good enough, then they would continue to study the rest of the books. Otherwise, they would have those first five books in their hearts, as it were, because they've gone over and over those books. And so God's ways, as they understand it, is the way to live well and to flourish. And their standard for a king, a human king, was David. And we're told that David is a man after God's heart. David was strong. He was a strategist. He was able in military terms. David walked with the Lord and he was sensitive to what was on God's heart most times anyway. And he cared for the people under him. David sinned, yes. But when the Lord rebuked him through the prophet Nathan, he was not slow in repenting. He didn't try to justify himself like Saul did when he made the sacrifices himself instead of the priest and Samuel came and rebuked him and said, why did you do that? It's not yours. And Saul tried to justify himself instead of repenting. But David was different. David, when he was confronted with sin, repented. There is one thing that we must be clear about in terms of Israel having a king. Israel wanting a human king was not God's idea. It was Israel's idea. They had come into the promised land and after many years, different judges, the last one being Samuel, they looked around them, they saw other nations, their neighbours having kings, and they wanted it. And you know, the last covenant is not to covet, but they wanted what their neighbours had. They wanted to be like them, to have a king. And you can find this in Samuel chapter 8. And there's this back and forth with Samuel. And so Samuel went to God. Samuel was upset with the people, he went to God, he complained to God, and God told him, it's not you they are rejecting, but me as king over the nation. And God being God, because the people insisted, 
gave in to their demands. The other thing we need to know is this, that God was not surprised. In fact, God had been prepared for them to go this way at some point in time, knowing their hearts. And so if you read Deuteronomy chapter 17, you will find Moses telling them in verses 14 to 20 that if you ask for a king, then this is what the king cannot do and this is what the king must do. And this is what he says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and haven't taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like the nations around us. God anticipated it. Be sure, appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. So one, it has to be someone that God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you one who is not an Israelite. And that's why it was hard for them to believe that God would allow another nation to conquer them. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. If you were to go to First Kings, you'll read how many horses Solomon acquired for himself. He must not take many wives. Read that in First Kings about Solomon as well. Or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom in Israel. Very specific, practical things the Lord tells the people to do or the king to do. He was not to amass possessions for himself. Solomon broke all of them. No, uh, not to acquire many horses, not to acquire many wives, not to acquire much silver and gold. All three Solomon did. Instead, the king was to copy, not have a copy made for him. He can assign people, please copy for me and bring it to me. The Lord said, no, you copy it yourself because in copying it, you will know what the word says. 
That's the idea behind it. And so the king was to copy the law in his own hand and keep reading it so that he may fear the Lord, so that he may know the ways of the Lord, the Lord's commands. The king was accountable to God. This was not an absolute monarchy like the other nations. The king was to be God's servant in leading the people to keep the law and to live in God's ways. The king would be someone whom God chooses. And we'll find that the later kings or the later people who ruled over Israel like Herod were not of God's choosing, but human choosing. So the king would be someone whom God chooses and anoints. So like Saul, like David, God specifically told Samuel to go and anoint them. Their anointing was a sign that God had chosen them. The anointed one in Hebrew is called the Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. So Christ is not Jesus' surname. Huh? It's Jesus, son of Joseph. They, they don't have family names like we do as such. Yeah? They were the house of David or whatever it is. But they didn't have surnames like we do. And so Christ means Jesus, the anointed one. And so as it turns out, Israel and later Judah went after other gods. They oppressed the poor, they went astray from God's ways, and often, more often than not, it was the kings who led the way. And so God brought the ultimate, what is called the covenant curse of exile upon them. If you read Deuteronomy 28, it is not that the people did not know that if they go astray, there would be punishment. And it is not just in the time of the prophets when they were told that right from the beginning in Deuteronomy, even before they became a nation going into the promised land, the people were told, if you leave and go after other gods, things will happen to you. Plagues will come, locusts will come, illness will come. And finally, if you still do not turn back, you will be sent away from this land. And that was precisely what happened. And after the exile, the Israelites learned their lesson. But from that time onwards, except for a very short period, Israel was never really free from being ruled by other people, a foreigner, that God in Deuteronomy had said, you will not put over you. They longed for that time when God's word about having one of their own rule over them would come back again because they remembered God's promise to David that if they were faithful, they would not fail to have someone from David's line to rule over them. And so by the time of Jesus, 
The Israelites or the Jewish people saw the Messiah as someone who would free them from political masters more than anything else. What the Lord said about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and the rest of these kinds of prophecy was the furthest thing from their minds. So it is no wonder that the crowds cheered and said the things they did on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Hosanna, which means God save us or the Lord saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, echoes Psalm 118, a royal psalm, one of many. The people had heard and seen, uh, many of them had seen the things that Jesus had done. They had heard his teaching and it was as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. We saw that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Earlier, if you read John chapter 6, Jesus, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the people wanted to make him king by force because he could fill their stomachs. But that was not the kind of king Jesus was. And so he withdrew. He escaped from them and he went alone to the mountain. They wanted someone to provide food for them. They wanted someone to wrestle authority from the Roman rulers and rule over them instead. But this was not God's plan. This was not how God wanted it done. And so this was not the kind of king Jesus would be. But if he is not that kind of a king, then what kind of king is Jesus? Didn't the scriptures say that God promised David one of his descendants would sit on the throne and rule Israel? And so the people hung on to prophecies like this. And like the one in the book of Daniel, when God showed Daniel that scene in, in the throne room of God when this son of man, one like a son of man coming to him and being given authority over all nations, not just Israel, but all nations. And so the people looked at that, but that was really the end result. That was where God would be taking the whole universe. The people did not see what it would take to get to that end. They could not grasp God's plan. And right there and then, in Jesus' time, as God's plan unfolded, it wasn't so easy to see it. Even Jesus' closest friends, the 12 who had been with him throughout his three years, could not see what was coming. But on that Sunday, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, it was a moment, a day of rejoicing, almost like euphoria. Jesus was coming to take his place on the throne, they thought. 
And these 12, having been with him three years, almost like in training, would occupy positions of authority, they thought. But that was not the route that God's plan would take. The clue to what kind of a king Jesus would be is that animal that he rode taking him into Jerusalem. It was a donkey. No conqueror rides on a donkey. Two days ago on Friday, I was at MGS Primary Chapel and I was telling them this story. And I was saying that, did Jesus come to make war and conquer? He said, no. I said, why? He rode on a donkey. So why can't a donkey be on a, you know, a conqueror on a donkey? Too slow lah. They were pretty quick on that one. The donkey is an animal of peace. Kings did ride on donkeys in the history of Israel and even in that region in the Middle East in those days in ancient times. But when they rode on donkeys and arrived at some place, it meant that they were coming in peace. They were not going to make war. And so one of the examples is when Solomon, when David instructed uh, the priest and some of the leaders to put Solomon on his donkey to take him into that place where they would anoint him. And Solomon did that. And this was after a very contentious time when uh, David's other sons were fighting for the throne and wanted to be king. But God has promised David that it would be Solomon who would sit on the throne. And so Solomon rode that donkey to say that he was not coming in for war, not at that time. After that, only he took his revenge, but that's another story. But right at that moment, riding on the donkey meant that he was coming in peace. A king that comes into a city with the intention to conquer, rides a charger, a war horse. And there will be a time when Jesus will ride that horse, the white horse in Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 17. But that day in Jerusalem was not the day. That day, Jesus came to Jerusalem in peace. That day, Jesus came to Jerusalem in order to die. That day, Jesus the King came to restore God's kingdom and rescue humankind from the bondage of sin, from a throne, but it was the throne of the cross. Jesus is God's anointed one, king over the universe, even if the cross seems to be the furthest thing from a throne, really. Jesus is king, even if dying on the cross is the most humiliating thing reserved for criminals and political opponents who were not Roman citizens. So what does it mean for us 
If Jesus is the king who comes in peace and who dies for his people. First of all, Jesus is worth following. It is worth submitting to Jesus as our king because he gave himself for us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 paints a picture of the length that Jesus went to in order to rescue us and bring us into God's kingdom. Emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. Some translations, more modern, put it servant. But a slave is the correct translation because a slave has no rights whatsoever. That was what Jesus did. He gave up his rights, his equality to be equal with God. He didn't hold on to that. And he became obedient even to death and death on the cross. That was the length which Jesus would go to. Secondly, we owe him our allegiance. We owe him our loyalty and devotion because he is king of the universe, our creator. Jesus is worthy. Jesus was loyal to us first. He didn't abandon us. God didn't abandon us in our sin and leave us to die because that would have been the most natural thing, the most... Um, the thing to do, because we rebelled. But Jesus did not. He did not think of himself, but thought of us all. And remember how we say, said earlier that all of us long for a ruler who cares for his subjects. Jesus is the one who loves his people. Third, following Jesus and submitting to his rule over us or entering his kingdom means we live in the ways that he has shown us. So we live in the ways of the king. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 to 7 and then Luke chapter 6 and another part of it in chapter 12 is the kingdom manifesto as it were. We could put it that way. It shows us kingdom life and kingdom ways. And if we are serious about following Christ the King or Christ our King, then we do well to take the words of the Sermon on the Mount into our hearts and ask God's help to live it. Fourth, following Jesus brings with it suffering. Because we live in a world that is hostile to Jesus in all his ways, just like the authorities in Jesus' days. Timothy Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, had this on his Twitter. Jesus wasn't just a nice guy who did good in the world. You know, we always tell Jesus, good guy, nice guy, did good things. But he says, Jesus isn't just a nice guy who did good in the world. You don't crucify nice guys. You crucify threats. Jesus was and continues to be a threat 
to those in power who cling to it for their own benefit and insist on doing things their way. And Jesus promised his disciples and us that if we want to follow him, we too will face suffering. And those who followed Jesus in his day, including the 12 disciples, really thought that day they were on the road to glory. When Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, most all of them actually thought that they would be going there to see Jesus sit on the throne. And so John and James had their mother come and ask Jesus. The other gospels said they did it themselves. Matthew says their mother went to Jesus to ask for a place on his left and right for her sons. They thought if they could get in that edge first, they would get those places, first come, first serve kind of thing. But Jesus set them straight. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? The cup being a symbol of suffering through which Jesus would go. The brothers very bravely answered, we can. And they did. They did in the end suffer for their loyalty to Jesus. But they realised that what this cup was in time to come. They didn't go down fighting as it were. We're not told, but they didn't. James would be the first disciple killed for his faith. John would live to a ripe old age in his 90s, exiled on the island of Patmos, but later executed also for his faith. Jesus is the king who comes not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Following Jesus will bring suffering one way or another. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, a German pastor who was killed in uh, the gas chambers in the concentration camp during World War II, Hitler's time. He says, when Christ calls a man, and of course a woman, he bids him come and die. Fifth, even when we go through suffering, we are not alone and we do not have to despair. Jesus, our King, who has gone through suffering, knows exactly what we are going through because he has been through it and he is able to give us what we need to go through. More than that, Jesus, our King, accompanies us in that suffering and uses the suffering to bring good into our lives. I was thinking about this um, for Monday, Thursday. But let me share this with you. The suffering in the world did not come from God. God did not cause our suffering. But yet, 
God chooses to enter into our suffering with us. The suffering is caused by us, our disobedience, our rebellion. God doesn't have any obligation to us when we suffer. Yet, God chooses to walk into our suffering to be with us. And no symbol is clearer of this than the cross. And so when Jesus takes our suffering and brings good out of it, it can involve shaking out the lies we've believed in. It can involve purifying us from whatever residual sin or unredeemed area of our lives we may still have. And it may involve reshaping us to be more like Him. And so our suffering when Jesus accompanies us becomes a tool that refines us like fire refines gold or silver. And finally, six, following Jesus means that one day we shall share in His glory and in the resurrected life as well. And that is the hope we have. It is hope not because it's something vague that we wish will happen, that we kind of think or desire will happen, but not sure whether it will happen. It is hope only because it is a sure thing that has not yet taken place, but will take place. And so it is hoping in a sure thing when we place our trust in Jesus. And so, my friends, we celebrate Palm Sunday today, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, in peace, a ride that will lead to the throne by the end of the week, the throne which is the cross. And he went to that throne of the cross for our sakes. So the challenge to us is whether we will give our total loyalty to this King who gave himself for us. Let us pray. I want to invite us to consider how much we have given ourselves over to this King who gave himself for us. And if there are areas in our lives or even areas or even if our whole heart has grown cold, I want to invite us to consider rededicating ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ as our King and to invite Him once again to allow Him to sit on the throne of our hearts. And if you would do that, I want to invite you to speak directly with the Lord about it. And He welcomes you. He's not angry upset, but he welcomes us. 
Lord God, our Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. You have heard the prayers said in the silence of hearts. Would you receive those prayers and answer them? Would you hold us in your love and care? Even as we acknowledge Jesus as King and give him the throne of our hearts. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>